Buddhist geeks. Seriously Buddhist, seriously geeky. Episode 99, The Zen Tree Fort in the Sky. We're joined again by musician and creative Stuart Davis to discuss his dramatic flip-flop between spiritual transcendence and spiritual eminence in his Zen practice. Find out how his daughters, wife, and crows helped bring Stuart down from his Zen tree fort in the sky. This is part two of a two-part series. Buddhist Geeks is supported largely by the generosity of our listeners. If you like what we're doing, please consider making a one-time or a small recurring donation by visiting buddhadharma20.com slash donate. Some of what you've been talking about can be understood in a couple of terms that we use, ascending and descending. I mean, you've definitely talked about that, like your relationship with your wife. Yes. And how that's been extremely helpful in your practice. So maybe can you say a little bit just explicitly about what ascending means and descending in practice? And then maybe we can talk a little bit more about that in relationship to your practice. Absolutely. Ascending or agency is another term that Ken, I think, has used a lot in his work. But it's the the drive towards ever increasing, you know, if you think of it altitudinally, like in, in my own life, a big part of my ascending drive, which is my constitution, basically my the way that I came into this world is wired to try to transform and evolve and grow and get to ever higher and higher states and stages or whatever. So in terms of Zen, for instance, sitting in my room by myself for all that time and meditating six or seven hours a day in the Zen tree fort in the sky, I called it. But that's yes, really, right. that is a euphemism for a true, like the ascender pathology. It's a very healthy, wonderful thing when it is healthy, but the pathological version we find so much in spirituality is the desire or ability to bypass the lower, messy inconveniences of daily life and drudgery mm-hmm. and so much of what is conventional. And so the ascending drive is like my life started at the neck up spiritually mm-hmm. and functioned from the groin down in reality. <laughs> and everything else was irrelevant to me, right? right? So it was like that went on for a long enough time. And then when I got with Marcy, what happened in her skillful way was a lot of really orienting me repeatedly through her inventive ways into the descending currents, which are birth, family, the realities of this day-to-day life and everything from the basics of caring and nurturing for other human beings to Mm -hmm. admitting that you do have a belly and a body and it's something that's designed for more than just alcohol and ejaculation. And, (laughs) And so the descending currents began to form more of an influence in my life and I just realized how completely dissociated I had been and how how that was a symbol for the world. And then in a way, I just couldn't even take the idea of being on earth. With mm-hmm. It's such a crazy, intense, dense place. I mean, the corporeality of this realm was something that scared the hell out of me so much that I had tried to ascend out of it in the air balloon of meditation or creativity. Before I had meditation, mm-hmm. it was always creativity. So I would take it, get in the air balloon and float right up into the sky and hang out with God and I don't feel that way anymore. I've actually done another kind of flip, I will admit, which is much more toward the descending currents. I also have an interest in trying to hold the piece that I feel is missing in myself or in 
communities or practice. And I just do think that there's not much descending ballast or mooring in a lot of the spiritual communities that I've hung out in. And, yeah, you know, and they're often they're disparaged. Yeah. Are you I mean, guys descenders? You know, I was hell? actually more, more. <laughs> yes, more and more. Yeah. I was going to say when I first came to Ken's work and especially when I found out about, about you and you talking about spirit, enlightenment, realization through your music and this combination of rocking out, you know, but we're still all talking about the same thing that changed my practice radically. How I, at least my orientation to it, how I conceived of it because mm-hmm. I was extremely ascending. And then I realized, holy shit, we can do this in the midst of our everyday life and not just, you know, people say that stuff all the time and it's just, it's full of it. Like I know people say that, Oh, we practice in everyday life, but not really. It's kind of like, I don't know. It's just not the same. And so, yeah, that just changed my perspective. I think at the time before that, I got into that really heavy phase of, I, I wore literally the same outfit all the time. Khakis, <laughs> white t-shirt. I was like, didn't shower. I didn't drink. Yeah. I didn't do anything. <laughs> no, I showered. Oh, I that shower. was my, that was me. <laughs> I've never been able to. I've never been able to go to the bo route. It's just not me. <laughs> just not me. But after that, and you know, I even I had tattoos before that. I was like, I'm, tattoos are bad. You know, who cares about the you know the body and like impermanent, bleh, you know. And then after that, I started like it was a slap in the face. Like, oh my god, what a jackass. You know, I am. But I still lean towards ascending myself personally. But I'm trying more and more to be in the world. I love what you're saying there, and my experience increasingly and again not to talk too much about my wife i mean the book has all this stuff in there sex god rock and roll but i really through her have learned that every day is an encounter with spirit in every form and that it's almost like there's training wheels in meditation or spirituality or the wisdom traditions which is at first it's very helpful and maybe throughout life helpful to have the decoys of the teacher of the mm-hmm. of the lineage of the tradition and all that all of those which i think are good and awesome and don't disparage but i also think that they can form an inhibitor which prevents right. us from entering into the deeper mystery of like i mean it is fucking miraculous out there in every way whether you're in a bar in soho talking with some stranger or working with the swami or just like throwing a ball back and forth with a kid or cleaning up the garbage or whatever it is in a most concrete way every one of those is the most intimate imaginable manifestation of the mystery and that's led me to conceive of the bodhisattva's vow as well in a in a way that's like this endless matrix of tunnels some of them are in the sky and some of them are underground but this Mm -hmm. labyrinth and when you move through the labyrinth of the interiors and the exteriors of reality and you encounter another being it's like you have to be able to have a sympathetic resonance people just have a bullshit meter that is so sensitive or all beings do perhaps which is i know when you're meeting me and you don't have an agenda Like, if you love me and you listen to me and you care and you're present with me and you're not trying to get something out of it, it immediately makes me disarm. And I just Mm -hmm. become open. And first of all, it feels great because you feel safe and loved. And it's like, Mm -hmm. from that issue's possibility. Mm -hmm. And so Mm -hmm. I started to ask myself, like, well, how much of that capacity do I have? Can I really be with people in that way? And if I can't, why not? And if I can't meet somebody in a cave of, the human experience, maybe they're you know a terrorist or a rock star or an angel or whatever, and I encounter them, 
and I can't be with him, that means I'm not going to be able to do what it is I think I'm supposed to be doing, which mm-hmm. is being fully human and, and living the imperative of the Bodhisattva's vow. That's why I think that studying the mystery of the human being, you think about somebody like Sarah Palin for me in the last two or three months, that is my guru. That is my you know, <laughs> Sufi teacher. And I think that's also like getting back to the decoys. That's real. She really is huh. Buddha mind. That's as she has 100% of spirit as I am. But when I encounter her, something in me shuts down. Something in me, you know, whether it's my cultural imprinting or background or the limits of my own development, whatever it is, I just know that I'm not able to do it. And so then the question becomes, what is this occlusion? What's the block? Because either I'm full of shit and the Bodhisattva's vow and the labyrinth and all this other stuff uh, within love is something that I can dispense with when I find something that that doesn't fit into my preferences Mm -hmm. or it's real. And then I'm left with the responsibility of figuring out why a guy like me can't feel power and love and freedom with Sarah Palin. And I think there's more juice for me in Sarah Palin than there is with my Zen teacher in the last month or two. And I I don't Mm. mean that in a way to knock him. Just if you think of it in simple juice power, juice power, juice, (laughs) <laughs> technical very technical tibetan term yeah look at look it up in tibet stuff sanskrit so you have a couple of beautiful girls indeed that um i get to see frequently which i love yeah and you mentioned a little bit about how that's being a parent being a dad is definitely a big part of your practice and so maybe say some more about that well getting back to decoys a lot of what I was so romantically lit up by in Zen practice and in Buddhism turned out to, to be a big decoy, which is, you know, in retrospect, now, of course, I understand six years into my marriage and five years into fatherhood and two daughters that God has, you know, also to use the word God as a Buddhist, I know is funny, but I, I feel People are it, railing against you right now. Yeah, I know. They're they going to put some comments. If we had comments, be like, God is, well, let me explain to you why God is. <laughs> In the sutra, they say that all gods are... Yeah. <laughs> when I say God, I do mean a guy with a white beard and a cloud. He's on a throne, <laughs> and it's like a vending machine, and basically I put in my wishes, and he dispenses products. Which... Well, you know, like, <laughs> in the in Tibetan tradition, for those who are Tibetan practitioners, I mean, the way that you talk a lot about, and this is a, a couple of geeky terms that I brought up recently in some conversations with Vince, but it's the whole thing about, um, in Tibet, the emptiness of emptiness. Everything is literally emptiness. There's no even Buddha nature is not considered the highest teaching of anything. Like there's nothing literally there. It's kind of nihilistic. And the way you talk is more about this thing about like, okay, there's emptiness, but there is Buddha mind, Buddha nature, something that's appearances arising, things like that. Mm-hmm. So when I hear you talk about those terms, it's kind of what I think of when I think of in Buddhist terms, if you say yeah. God or something like that. Yeah. Get in the ballpark of that anyways. <sighs> totally. And I could say mystery or with a capital M. Or- right. And those that actual term, I mean, that gets thrown around a lot. Like in the Vajrayana teachings, you'll hear the equivalent of mystery and things yeah. like that thrown around a ton. Well, I am a ultimate adherent to the mystery schools. I do believe that in terms mm-hmm. of a trans lineage lineage, there is one that goes back and it's the mystery schools, which is manifest as all esoteric traditions. And, and so the mystery comes to me most intimately and concretely through my daughters and my wife and Mm. i was completely allergic to that when i was a zen (laughs) practitioner i was like i am well for 10 years the non-negotiable premise of my life was i will never have kids (laughs) 
I don't have many things I'm going to say without qualification, but I will never have kids. And I told that to every girl I was with. I ended relationships with women I loved because of that. Mm. And it was non-negotiable. And I saw it as central and had to defend it as the thing that fueled my spiritual life. I looked at my life and thought, I'm going to be a monk. I'm going to be a meditator. I'm going to go inward and I'm going to be available to the mystery totally. And that means no babies because babies will eat up all this other time and they'll compete with each other and the mystery will lose and the babies will win and I'll be changing diapers and not being awake. And it was so completely backwards and wrong and ridiculous. And uh, my daughters now, it's really truly having the animated presence of the mystery I mean, I'm guided by five-year-olds and two-year-olds. That's the truth of it. It's like they know things. My daughters know things and come as emissaries from a place of love that I am not, you know, I can't be left to my own devices without them. I'm not qualified. I need their leadership and presence and my wife's as well. And so the decoy was, it was effective still for me to have that romantic love honeymoon with Zen. I was like, that's it, man. I found it. I'm going to be a Zen practitioner. But the mystery was like, guess what? That was actually just a weep. That's over. <laughs> we really, it's it's like uh, there's a knock at the door or something. You open up and there's a really hot girl there and you lean in to kiss her and she she vanishes. And then behind that, there's who knows what. I call it the, the bait and switch. Yes. Yep. Fantastic <laughs> technique, isn't it? That the mystery uses. Yep. It's all decoys in every direction, I'm still mm-hmm. convinced. And the, the mystery, I understand as well, will at some point communicate and present to me the fact that my daughters are a decoy as well. And that every other conceivable thing that I would locate or anchor some reality to mm. as a concrete is going to be a decoy. At any point, my daughters for this lifetime redeemed me and saved me. And you know, Not that I'm fully redeemed, but they did save me. And allow me to at least understand how grossly I had misunderstood everything. And then to watch, to not, if possible, don't do that again. Or as badly, or severely. Mm. Viva la daughters. So, maybe the last thing we can talk about is your art. And and especially, like, what's up with crows, man? Yeah, I'm really interested in hearing about this too. Uh, Crows. About... So probably this was eight years ago. I was up in the mountains outside of Boulder and I was stuck in a snowstorm and I had my guitar and it was a bad snowstorm, like three days, nobody coming in and out or whatever. And I was alone in the house in this uh, glass room, four walls of glass up on top of a mountain peak. And the flakes were like the size of your head. It was like the biggest, heaviest snowstorm ever. And I was writing this song and I didn't have any words, but it was just really catching this mood inside of me Mm. and a crow just like slow motion glided across the expanse of the horizon and very close like i don't know 25 30 feet out in front of me or whatever and crows don't glide i've i've since learned but this crow i remember at least to be gliding or not flapping its wings much (laughs) but when the moment i saw that crow just the most strange sense of recognition and elation and just like, I mean, I felt feelings that I had only ever felt for people before, but in even a more peculiar way, I just, I started to cry and I just was incredibly moved. And 
it was like seeing a family or something that I had never seen before. I don't know. I just was so moved. And so that song became the song Glass, mm. which is on this album, What? And it's a very literal lyric where it says, uh, Fallen snow on the back of a gliding crow of a crow. And it's just the the music communicating the rest of it. The music speaks the language of what that crow spoke to me that day. And it's, I would say it's almost verbatim in terms of the sound and the emotion that mm. came from it. And after that time, I just became deeply enchanted and, and entranced and mesmerized and hypnotized by crows. And shortly after that, I started to paint them. I woke up one morning and I just, like, I had them in my head. There was a murder of crows in my head and I just started painting obsessively and frantically and i painted like hundreds and hundreds of crows and i'm a horrible painter all truth be told i'm not a painter but i had to learn to paint crows or to i don't know i just had to do this exorcism divest myself of something that was in the form of these crows and after days <laughs> my wife thought i was literally losing my mind there were hundreds of paintings of crows all over the studio <laughs> And I was doing it 14 hours a day to the exclusion of all else. I wasn't eating. I was completely obsessed, consumed. And finally, at the end of about day three, I painted this one scroll that had eight different series of these two crows. And it started out and they were looking different directions. And then the next part of the scroll, they were looking at each other and they, they get into a fight. And then it's like this really intense thing. And then at the end of the scroll... There's one crow body with two heads. And when I painted that, I was like, oh, I painted the last one. And I went, oh, my God, they're monks. The crows are Zen monks. I was like, how the fuck could I not realize it's like, then, of course, you realize crows are a huge archetypal image in Zen. And always, <laughs> but I mean, the <laughs> fact that I can overlook that just only speaks to my own complete non-acquaintance with my own tradition. You know, So I went... Oh my God. And I was like elated. And I went out into my yard and there were crows in the tree in my backyard. At which point I was actually scared out of my mind. Mm. I felt it was terrifying. Actually, it was like a strange, there was like a sorcery quality or something to it to have mm. been painting them. And now I would look at it and say it was the only concrete instance of what's the Jungian event where synchronicity yes mm. it was actual synchronicity mm. and i stood there for a few seconds and i was like oh my fucking god you know and i ran in the house and i was like marcy there are crows in the back and she got it because she'd been watching me paint crows for three days <laughs> and she was like you're fucking kidding me and walked back out there and we were both like holy shit this is so weird so of course that reinforce whatever my ideas or notions or experiences about them were. They just became, at that point, I was like, I interpret that as a confirmation of some kind, and I just took faith in them and became obsessed. And so that from then on out, I've painted crows, and getting back to the language thing, at that moment, I decided to do Big Mind with the crows. And they began to, um, I guess I should try to, describe this in a sane way instead of romantically assume that the crows i'm literally channeling crows which i can't tell you that i am but i will say that when i construct the language and when i paint crows i do big mind with them and they are the 
source for new words in the language of is, this language that I construct. Mm. And they very often give me poems in the language of is, and that's how I get new words in the lexicon. And it's also probably the most used process for me, just in terms of koan practice, psychological shadow work. It's always what I go to is crows whenever you know I'm feeling depressed or sad or Anytime I run up against a block, I paint crows. And then new words and is come out of it, and some new saying comes from them, and I feel okay again. I dream about them all the time. And I mean, it's still to this day, I see them probably five or six times a week. And every time I see them, I just feel like jumping out of the car and running over to them. And it's very strange, but I do think that... (laughs) How honest should I be about it? I think that there's... um, more to the mystery than can be concisely or coherently put together. And I think there's something about crows that I don't know and don't need to know, but it's enough for me to know that that they were there for me and continue to be. And I guess in terms of the tradition, if it is all delusion, it's a really useful delusion. And I've enjoyed it a great deal, for sure. Oh, oh, oh. 
Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference, hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun from October 16th through the 19th in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, idea-packed TED-style talks, self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Dancy, abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and pragmatic Dharma provocateur, Daniel Ingram, as well as many others. For more information and to register, visit BuddhistGeeks.com conference. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.